All right. Let's get started. I'm going to be short tonight. Hey, hey. <coughs> Judy heard me at practice. I was like pumping myself up. I was like, preach short, preach short, preach short. All right. So we've been in the book of Acts. Um, just to recap, we started out with Jesus commissioning his disciples, saying, I'm going to send you out. I'm going to, you're going to start in Jerusalem. You're going to go into Judea, then to the ends of the earth. But first, you've got to wait for something big to happen. And so they, um, <laughs> a little while later, they, uh, the Holy Spirit fell, this huge explosive moment that kind of shadowed back to some moments we talked about. And the church is kind of sent out from there. Uh, they come out of the upper room and Peter preaches kind of his first sermon and uh, 3,000 people get saved, which really sets the bar high for the rest of us. But, um, but he, uh, uh, it just kind of starts things going. The church kind of gets this huge jump start. And then uh, Luke tells us right after that that uh, the church kind of fell into some good rhythms. They were meeting house to house. They were meeting um, at the temple. They were breaking bread together, sharing what they had, and going forward. Then we go straight to the next kind of major turn, and we don't know how much time has passed. We know that they've kind of started to form some rhythms, but it tells us Peter's on his way to temple, and he sees a beggar outside the temple. And he uh, sees something in this guy, and he heals him. He says, what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And this guy gets up and comes into the temple with him. And this guy was well known. He beg there all the time and so it causes a bit of a stir and a whole crowd of people gather around to find out what had happened and Peter tells them and he preaches his second sermon and 5,000 people get saved and this is enough to really grab the turn the heads of kind of the powers that be the Sanhedrin which was kind of the ruling body these were the guys that had just previously tried Jesus and uh, found him guilty and sent him on to Herod uh, for further trials, but they call Peter in, Peter and John. And they try them, and Peter and John just kind of stand in bold. They were kind of expecting them to cower and be afraid, but they just stole with, stood with boldness and said, we have to say what God has shown us, what we've seen. And they recognized this boldness. They'd seen it before, just a few months ago in Jesus. And so they threaten them, tell them not to preach this way anymore. This kind of becomes a major deal in our story today threatens them and says, no more, no more preaching. And so they run back to their people. very first move is to run back to the flock to get back with their people. They say, this is what's going on. We've been threatened. They all pray, and they don't pray that the threats will go away. They don't pray that the persecution will stop. They just pray that God will give them boldness to stand against it. And so they pray for boldness, and and God gives it to them. They keep preaching. Uh, And then again, Luke kind of stops again, and he kind of gives us a, uh, a snapshot. He kind of he, what he'll do is he'll tell you what happens, and then he pulls back and tells you the impact it had, and then he tells you what happens, and he pulls back and tells you the impact it had. And so at this point, he pulls back again and he says the impact was that people just got crazy involved. Like some of the people were selling things that they had so they could give money to the church and take care of the poor. It said that everyone among them uh, had their needs met. There was no needs among them. And uh, and we find out later that they took this so seriously. This probably actually I'm probably stepping on next week's sermon, but they they took this so seriously that 
that the kind of first dispute and the first people they had to hire was to make sure that all the poor got what they needed. There were some people that weren't getting their needs met. And so they had to hire help because they weren't willing to let that go. They weren't willing to scrimp on that. And so they bring in some more people to help feed the poor. And then last week we talked about Ananias and Sapphira, this story that kind of jumps out and, and none of us like, and we normally like to skip over it because it's, it's confusing and frustrating. But these people come in and they, they sell a piece of land and they keep some of the profit for themselves. And then they come in and we, we discover as we get into it that the problem wasn't that they kept some. It was there. Peter even says, when it was your land. You could do whatever you want with it. In fact, even once you sold it, the money was yours. What they did, though, is they came in and said, this is how much we sold it for. They were inauthentic is what they were. They came in and said, I'm, I'm this kind of a Christian, when really they were, they were hiding part of it. So they, we learned last week that really what their sin was was that they weren't authentic. They weren't themselves. They wanted to be seen as a certain type of Christian when they weren't really that type of Christian. And we do this in churches. Um, we have a tendency to come in and, and put forth a part of us, the Facebook us. Um, uh, I'm going to hang on to that. We, the, the Facebook us. They, 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 we put forth an image that's not really us. And we don't want that. Ananias and Sapphira. And we talked at the end of what, it, what would it look like if they'd gotten away with it? What if Ananias and Sapphira would get away with this moment? What if, they, what if they say, this is how much we made. Here's all of our money. And everybody's like, you are awesome. I can't believe you gave that much. That is so cool. You are so awesome. And then they have to go home like that that night. Like, everybody thinks I'm this when I'm really not. And what if that goes on for two months or three months? Like, who knows what it's like to live under that? And so, so really what they, what they missed was authenticity. And that's what we're after. And then today we have uh, kind of our next piece. And then, and, Luke tells us that the apostles continued to uh, go to the temple, even though they'd been threatened. And they're meeting in Solomon's porch, which is this kind of wraparound covered uh, portion around the temple. They had a big open air spot that the Gentiles could meet in. And then they had Solomon's porch, which was around that. And they were meeting there daily. And Peter was, and it kind of tells us some funny stuff in the beginning that only some of them were going, but... Uh, Peter's in there preaching, and they and the Sanhedrin had told him not to do this, and so, uh, but it was having such an effect that it says people were um, lining up on the streets on the way to the temple, so that Peter's shadow might fall on them, so that as he walks down the street, like so many signs and wonders were happening, that people were just trying to get into his shadow, and it kind of creates this weird scene, and it was causing such a stir that the Sanhedrin comes back in. It's really threatening. We talked about how the kind of the power structure of the day was being threatened by the Christians because people no longer needed this kind of temple authority and really no longer needed to contribute to this temple authority. And this was threatening the powers that be. And so they come out and arrest Peter. They throw him in jail. Um, They said they put him in the common jail. They actually had holding cells in the temple where they could have held him, were usually religious um, dissidents were, were kept for, for discussion and things, but they said they put him in the common jail, which is where like thieves and murderers would have gone. And so they threw him in the common jail. Um, and the, and an angel came, it says that night and released Peter, told him to go back and keep preaching. So he doesn't run. He just goes right back into the temple again. The next day they go to the jail to get him and he's not there. And one of the jailers said, it's not a big deal. He's easy to catch. He's back in the temple again. 
And so they, they went and grabbed him again. They bring him in and they're like, we have made this very clear. You cannot preach in this name anymore. And Gamaliel uh, comes in and he's this Pharisee, this part of the Sanhedrin, which was a little bit rare anyway. The Sanhedrin was mostly Sadducees, but there is a Pharisee named Gamaliel here. And we actually, when you get into Gamaliel, and this, I'm not going to do this. This is the part I really want to get into, but we don't have time. So Gamaliel is actually a really interesting character historically, um, which you're going to have to look him up because I don't have time to do it. Um, I know, ain't it killing you? Yeah, see? Right. Um, Gamaliel was of the Hillel house, um, which was, there was really kind of two houses in most of our teaching in Jewish um, uh, Mishnah is either Hillel or Shammai. Um, Hillel was kind of the, the generous, like if we were to put Jesus in a house, he would have been in the Hillel house. He was kind of the graceful, generous, forgiving um, rabbi, and Shammai was more the legalist, strict, rule follower rabbi. And Gamaliel came up in the, in the Hillel house, um, but he, he also, we find out that Paul actually um, discipled under Gamaliel, and Paul had a very violent like, response to the Christians. And so Paul was, uh, was either a very zealous Gamalielite, um, or Gamaliel actually had a very strict, heavy edge to him too. We're not sure which, but um, there's actually several quotes and a few um, uh, Mishnah rules uh, about that Galil wrote, most of them about the way a wife should behave toward her husband, which is, um, we're not going to get into that. But, um, but, uh, but Gamaliel was actually a pretty, a pretty well-known um, rabbi Pharisee historically. We actually have some of his writings and some other people writing about him. He's kind of a big deal, not just in the scripture, but uh, in history as well. But um, he comes out and tells, and he kind of talks down the Sanhedrin. He's kind of like, guys, we've seen this before, relax. And we're actually going to get into what he said in a little bit. But this day kind of uh, uh, is kind of a roller coaster for Peter. Like if you think about what Peter goes through in this one day, he goes to the temple and on the way back there's people lining the streets hoping to get into his shadow. Like it's almost this like papal like the Pope kind of thing, like this weird, like, and, and you got to remember, these, they, he's a fisherman. This is a blue collar dude that just like not long, before, this is a fisherman turned failed disciple. Like he was a fisherman and became a disciple. As soon as his rabbi like got into trouble, he scrammed. Like, so he completely failed as a disciple. He ran. Jesus comes back, gives him a second chance. And now he's back out here. And a few weeks later, people are lining the streets. It says that people were coming from other towns and bringing their sick to Jerusalem to see Peter. So he goes from, in one day, goes from walking down the street in this almost papal procession to by the end of that day, he's naked, stretched out over a log, being beaten. This is a roller coaster day. This is kind of an up and down day for Peter. So, and this kind of brings up our tension for the day a little bit. Honor. This is kind of a major theme, really in society in general, but definitely in the Old Testament, in the Scripture. It shows up early. We have uh, Abraham um, tithing to Melchizedek. And later in the Bible, it, it talks about since Abraham's the one giving the tithe, Melchizedek must have been above Abraham. There was this honor relationship, and, and the tithe is this sense of honor to Melchizedek. It extends 
uh, into the Ten Commandments that children are supposed to honor their father and mother. And as we get further into the Levitical code and it breaks that down a little clearer, if they weren't, you could take them out and stone them uh, if you wanted to. If, you know, if they won't honor you, you can kill them. And my kids can all quote that verse. Um, <laughs> no. No. Uh, and it... Uh, and it carries through less in command, but more just in attitude. As you read about the way um, everybody responded to Eli, um, the last judge, or not the last judge, the second to the last judge, and then Samuel, like when they would come to a town, they would like clear the town, like the prophet is coming, and everybody would like this big hush hush thing. There was just a sense of honor for um, for God's servants. Like whenever you had. And even Moses, like there was times when people would challenge Moses as God's leader, as kind of the leader, the spiritual leader of the people. There's one time some people raised up against Moses, like, who are you? Like, how do we know God called you? And the earth opened up and swallowed him. And you're like, well, that answers that. Uh, you know. So this just kind of carries through. Um, through, and we've got actually some verses, and it's in our story here tonight. Um, where it, at the beginning of our passage it says the people esteemed them highly. So this is Peter. This is when they're lining the streets. Fishermen. They're doing this for fishermen. We've also got other ones. Paul kind of codifies it a little bit when he says, let the elder who rules uh, well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. Do not rebuke an elder, but exhort him as a father, both in First Timothy 5. Is anyone else starting to get the feeling that this message is a little self-serving? No. Here's the tension. Humility. I could have picked a lot of words here. I actually struggle with how to, how to articulate this. Because Jesus kind of turns this thing about honor on its head. He kind of flips it a little bit. And this is the verse where he makes it most clear. It says, But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. They lord their position of authority over them. And the great ones exercise authority over them. So the ones who are over the rulers, they lord it over the people they're over. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And give his life a ransom for many. This is something Jesus modeled, both in his death, but also in the foot washing. And he made a big deal about it there. He's like, if I, he picked the lowest job you could have. So I don't even know, like maybe the toilet scrubber in our society, except I scrub toilets. I don't, I don't know. You got to go. I don't know how you go. I don't know what job to say. Uh, maybe micros dirty jobs. You know, I don't know. Anybody ever watch that? You got to watch it. It's got some good ones. But, um. But he picked the lowest job he could find and he took that job and said, if I've done this for you, of course you have to do it for other ones. And the flip side of, of biblical honor in this kind of New Testament economy is that those with honor become the servants. It's, it's flipped. Marriage, the, the marriage passage is a great one here. All of our favorite verses. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. 
And this was a, this was in a Roman society. Paul's writing this in a Roman society. And Rome was actually built on this structure. Rome had the closest thing, um, to a family structure, like a real kind of defined family structure as any of the kind of ancient cultures. In Greece, women had almost no value. In fact, there's a, I think it's in the Iliad. I almost looked it up this week. It's in, it's in one of the, it's either in the Iliad or something else where there's a race and they had like an Olympiac, Olympiad race. And if you won, the winner got two oxen. And the second place person got two women. Like so, yeah, so like if you were, so it kind of shows you where the value in Greek culture was. But, um, but the, uh, uh, but Rome wasn't that right way. Rome actually had a defined family structure. And the wife was to be, um, kind of in charge of the home. But she wasn't to, to leave the home unless she was, going out with that, like really strict rules on the wife. And the, and the husband was the authority and he was the public figure and went out in, in public and, and, uh, and the wife was kind of the stay home and, and don't make a fuss type. And Paul is writing to, in a culture that was used to that. And what's funny is he doesn't flip, he doesn't flip the structure. He doesn't say, no, you've got the, the, the base structure all wrong. What he does is he redefines the roles within the structure. So watch what he says here. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So it's almost like saying, Okay, husbands, if you want the top seat, you got it. Here's what that looks like. It looks like a cross. It looks like Jesus. It looks like sacrifice. You are absolutely in charge. And it looks like sacrifice. He flips the authority system on its head he takes that authority figure and says this is the if this is the head position like the head of our church the absolute head of our church had his beard pulled out he was spit on he was hung on a cross he was beaten and that's our model for authority that's our model for leadership Peter experienced both of these today. It's kind of interesting because he's, he's walking down the street and people are fighting to get into his shadow of all things. And then the same day, he's beaten. And what's interesting is this wasn't a church-wide persecution at the time. And this is one of the best pictures of leadership I think you could have. This wasn't a church-wide persecution yet. The church-wide persecution doesn't happen until Nero. This is just the Sanhedrin. This is just kind of the, the closest like ruling body that's being offended and affected by the church just kind of flexing their muscles. But in the beginning of the passage it says this, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were being done, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. So you got the apostles going into Solomon's porch where all the rest of the Jews would kind of gather and they're going in to, to basically preach and proselytize. They're trying to spread the message and explain to people that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. But most of the Christians didn't go because that's danger zone in there. Like those are the people who have already threatened, you know, don't preach in this name anymore. So it wasn't the whole church that's like packing in to the temple. This is the apostles going in to kind of the hot zone to preach. Almost like they understand if we're in charge, if we're in authority, 
This is our job. It's our job to take the risks to put our neck on the line. At the end of the passage, it says, and they agreed with him. This is after Gamaliel makes his thing. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame in his name. So the same day he's treated like a pope, he's arrested. He doesn't say, how dare you? Do you know who I am? Have you not seen the way the people treat me? Do you not, have you not seen the miracles I can do? How dare you lay a hand on me? He doesn't do it. He just takes it and takes the beating. And, and not just that, he considers it an honor. Basically, his response to being abused for Jesus is, yep, what else could I expect? They did that to my master. What else could I expect? So our tension point, are Christian leaders in positions of honor or base servanthood? Yes. That is the answer. Yes, they are. So, let's get into our passage tonight. And this one's going to be really quick, I promise. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. This is Gamaliel's advice. And Gamaliel's advice basically breaks down to one thing. If we break it all the way down, basically what he says is give it time. That's basically the advice he gives. Give it time. We've seen this before. And what's ironic is we get to see what is impressive to this kind of person. We get to see what, what jumps out at them. Because miracles are happening. People are being healed. It's signs and wonders, whatever those are, are happening. Peter's shadow apparently has some kind of healing effect. And this has no impact on the Sanhedrin. And a lot of times we feel like, if God would just do this, then everybody would see and then they would know. Like we feel like if he would, you know, if he would just answer this prayer, then, then they would know that he's God. Almost like the story of Lazarus and the rich man, when the rich man is like, then at least send Lazarus back to tell my brothers so they don't wind up here. And God's like, they've got Moses and the prophets. If, if he's not going to believe them, they're not going to believe even if somebody came back from the dead. Like we think that some of these huge signs and wonders is what it would take to turn people, to impress people, to show people God is real. Gamaliel, the only thing that's going to sway him is if this thing sticks. If it sticks, a lot of times the big explosive things aren't what make a difference. It's what we call here fidelity over time. Faithfulness for a long time. 
That's what the Christian life is about. It's not about a big explosive beginning. It's not about like some shooting star that burns out quick. It's about sticking the course. It doesn't mean we don't fall. It doesn't mean we don't screw up. It just means when we fall, we get back up. And then when we mess up, we get up, we confess. And we keep following Jesus. And it's rocky and it's lumpy. And there's times when if you looked at my life, you certainly wouldn't have assumed I was a Christian. But little by little, the progress is toward Christ. It's faithfulness over time. At no point in your life can you take a snapshot and get a picture of how you're doing in your Christian walk. You can only do that in 10-year chunks and sometimes 20-year chunks. Looking at your life and saying, where am I compared to where I was? Like, what is my trajectory over an extended amount of time? I love the way Eugene Peterson says it. He calls it a long obedience in the same direction. Not perfection by any means. Sometimes the world doesn't need to see how a Christian does well. They need to see how we do poorly. They need to see what, what you do when you screw up. That's what we need to model. We need to model how you get back up, dust yourself off, confess, and move forward. The church at this point is caring for the poor. They're healing people. They're making thousands of converts. And what Gamaliel wants to see is time. And, he, and, and you can tell, because he beats Peter at the end of this, you can tell he doesn't think it's going to stick. Like his attitude is, we've seen this before, this happens. People get, and they get followers and things get explosive and this kind of thing happens all the time. And this is why we've been talking about some of those quotes of those early historians who... Uh, who noticed a few things about Christianity when they're trying to write about what, why Christianity succeeded and some of the things they came up with, the three top things we've talked about, was they died better than anybody else. Nobody had ever seen people who will just go to their death singing hymns. Like the, there's stories of them in the, in the Circus Maximus holding hands and singing hymns as the lions overcharged them. And just the way that would affect a crowd. Because they were used to seeing big gladiators run screaming. And these Christians just stood and died well. They were more inclusive than anybody else. That was the second one. There were no religions that, that fully accepted, except for some of the, the goddess religions. There were no religions that accepted women equally with men. And Christianity did. They were the, one of the first religions that did that. They accepted slaves and, and free. They accepted rich and poor. And the historians of the day noted that. Like, nobody else, no one's as inclusive as the Christians. And they cared for more poor than anybody else. Everybody else cared for their poor. Like, they, if you were a Jew, you cared for the Jewish poor. And Christians didn't care. They cared for all the poor. All those quotes, by the way, came, most of those happened about 300 AD. Like, most of the historians that they pulled for that thing, the, the, the bulk of the writing was when Christianity was kind of turning. And these historians are writing why it's, it's turning to be the predominant religion of Christianity. So this is 300 years. Like when you think 300 years is actually a pretty long time. This 300 years, this, this rhythm we're seeing that's 
six months old at this point where they're taking care of the poor, they're selling things, they're giving of themselves, they're, they're being sacrificial. 300 years later, it's still happening. It's actually growing and spreading. It's actually, and we've gone, and in those 300 years, they go through some brutal persecutions. The Nero persecution was bad. It was basically the government like killing Christians wholesale. The, the Diocletian persecution, he actually made it legal for any Roman citizen to kill Christians. It wasn't just the government doing it. He actually opened the doors. And he, he basically said, if you're a, a Roman citizen, you can kill any Christian you want. Like This persecution we see from the Sanhedrin, as the church spreads and grows in its kind of underground subversive power, like growing because they're loving so much and caring for people so much, not growing because they have numbers and, and military might. They never had that. They have this love that's like under the surface and they're growing and expanding. And the, the, as, the, as they grow, the persecution from the power center grows. And they're like, we have got to shut this down. And 300 years later, Christianity is the predominant religion of the Roman Empire. It's... it's and unfortunately, they don't do well with that power. Christianity is not really a power religion. They start getting kind of nasty the second they're given power. But when they're powerless, they're extremely powerful. When they're small and loving and subversive and really have nothing to offer, they rock the world. So Gamaliel's advice was absolutely right. Let's see if this thing sticks. And history tells us it did. It absolutely did. So tonight, as we go to our response time, as we sing and give and gather at the table, my hope is that you would find a rhythm, like, so much of church happens a weekend at a time. You know what I mean? Like, it's just the next weekend, the next weekend, the next weekend. And my hopes are that we would find, like, longer rhythms. The kind of, like, the, the, one of the primary purposes of the Torah, of all the festivals, the Levitical code in the Torah, was to create these rhythms. They had these festivals every year to remind you and to draw you back and to, to keep you drawn in because it's not about being a shooting star it's not about and, and we do this we come into church what can I serve what can I do uh, you know and we we have a tendency to burn ourselves out and and what we need is to find healthy rhythms in our lives people we meet with fairly regularly to just kind of check up on us and love on us and and things we look forward to and we know they're going to be there every year. We're going to we're going to settle into Advent. I'm already excited about Advent. We're going to uh, we're going to talk a lot about Advent as it comes up. If you haven't been in a liturgical church, you're probably not used to Advent. Advent's really just just celebrating the Christian season, the full season of Advent, not just prepping for a day. But and we're going to really settle into this Advent thing. And and once you find these rhythms, and then next year. We're going to make a big deal out of Lent again. And we're going to have, next year we're actually going to have an Ash Wednesday service. Like Ash Wednesday is one of my favorite 
services. It's a, and, and like those are just markers in my year that I look forward to because I know they're coming around again. I'll, tell, I'll share a little bit on my Ash Wednesday. Um, Ash Wednesday traditionally in, in church history is the day we contemplate our mortality. It's kind of a dark night to think about death because you know in 40 days we're going to celebrate life on, on Easter. And Ash Wednesday we go and we contemplate. We think about the people we've lost. We think about how short our life is. We think about what Jesus overcame. And I've gotten in this rhythm. I lost some friends several years ago. And I don't think... Here it comes. I don't think I had really dealt with it until I went um, to an Ash Wednesday service. And this is exactly what I did. I went to an Ash Wednesday service and thought about death and I just bawled. And my, it took my kids because they'd never been to an Ash Wednesday service. So I take my kids and, we're, and we did these stations that you move through and you just kind of sit and there's a board that you read and it just kind of gives you something to contemplate and a few things you can do. And I just sat there and thought about the people I'd lost. And I just broke down. And my kids are like, oh my God, Dad's freaking out. And so they just moved on to the next station, just kind of left me there. Yeah. And then they came home and like, Mom, I don't know what happened, but Dad lost it. And what's awesome is I now look forward to that every year. And every year since, I've sat down at station number one and just bawled. And I now know I've got this time in my life when I just, it's there. I know exactly when I contemplate death. I know exactly the day I miss my grandpa and I think about all the memories and I just let the grief kind of cleanse me and wash over me. And then when I'm done, I feel better and I go on out and I'm back to being joyful. And it's part of my rhythm now. And we need these rhythms. We need something to, to, that are just part of the way we do life so we know where they are. And we know, you know, and, I'm, and I've been trying to, to build those in our church. Just, it's why we use the church calendar. It's why we uh, follow a liturgy. Because sometimes when you're just not feeling it, and it's just, and you did, you did well to drag yourself in here, it's good to just get caught up in the rhythm. And it's a rhythm I know. And it's, and it's there. And I just, I, don't, like, and I just, I can just let it wash over me. 